a science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to The Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week we have a special episode. The common thread that connects our storytellers today is that they are members of a cutting-edge research institute located in the Midwest at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. This is the first of two episodes sponsored by the Carl R. Woese Institute for Genomic Biology, or IGB so named for the pioneering work of microbiologist Carl R. Woese, who discovered the third domain of life, which has a unique way of approaching discovery. Rather than individual scientists working on their own, the IGB combines people from different scientific backgrounds to work in larger teams to tackle some of our most complex and pressing problems, such as the global food shortage or the treatment of cancer. Within the labs at the IGB, it's common to see geologists working side-by-side side with a physicist or a civil engineer collaborating with a plant biologist in what's come to be known as team science. These individuals unite under the umbrella of genomic research. They research everything genomic-influenced, from drug discovery, diet and nutrition, personalized technology, exercise, family dynamics, even how your environment affects your mood, productivity, and health. Also uniting our storytellers is the common theme of unlikely paths. While science rarely takes an expected and predictable path, neither do our storytellers. Our first story is from Hungji. It was recorded this fall in her home. One day in March 2020, we were already sent home for lockdown. And I was struggling to build a normal work-life routine at home. I was holding Zoom meetings with my students and collaborators, taking some online yoga classes, cooking for my son, and organizing some online parties to connect with my friends. Up until then, even with the pandemic, I was a young, successful, even privileged artificial intelligence researcher with a very loving family and a highly supportive work environment. My life was nearly perfect. In the middle of all of that, I got a phone call from my gynecologist. She said they found fat cells in my mammogram pictures, which might be indicators for breast cancer. And I should go to the hospital immediately to talk about whether I should do a surgery or not. So the purpose of a surgery is to do excision surgery and take out the fat cells. And I need to make my own decision whether I should do it or not. I was, of course, in complete shock and I uh, had a very hard time to process this message. I was wondering, what if I die after a few years? What about my son? How would he live without me? What if I get a ugly scar from the surgery? Who should be in charge of my project meetings that I'm going to miss? And because it was during pandemic, no other family members were allowed to enter the hospital with me. So I was in a very freezingly cold room in the hospital, I was pondering whether I should do a surgery or not. The only other person in the same room was my surgeon, a tall and good-looking man. He introduced himself to me. He said he has this, uh, the same uh, first name 
as one of my best friends at that time. And he told me he's affiliated with the UIUC as a faculty member. He also published many papers on breast cancer. So I was feeling very cold and I really hated the very bright lights in the room. Uh, so uh, the surgeon asked the nurse to give me a very warm blanket to cover my upper body. So this is the university hospital. One really good thing is that they have some special techniques to warm blankets. So I asked one more blanket to cover my leg. And a half hour later, I asked yet another one to cover my shoulder. The surgeon can notice that I was very nervous. So he asked three more blankets to wrap me up like a silk worm. His professional background and uh, that kind of super kind attitude really gained my trust. So I looked up at him and I asked him, do you think I should do the surgery? And he said, if you were my sister, I would suggest you to do it. So I made my decision to do the surgery immediately. And uh, I was sent from this room to another surgery room right away. So what he said was, of course, very reassuring remark on that particularly depressing day. But uh, also I kept wondering why this kind of medical decisions, very important decisions should be made in such a subjective way. Would the decision be any different if I met a different doctor or surgeon? Eight hours later, after my surgery, I woke up in a very different room, although it was still very freezingly cold and scary. So, and I heard a more depressing news from my doctor she said, even though I did my surgery and my biopsy uh, results were negative, I still need to take a medicine. That medicine is supposed to kill breast cancer. So I was shocked because I did not have cancer. Why should I take the medicine? So she said, my risk level is right above a threshold based on their machine learning model. So the machine learning model is used to predict the risk level for breast cancer. You know, I was a computer scientist. I'm a computer scientist. I have an instinct that I need to see the machine learning model. I, I want to know what the kind of indicators they are using. So I insisted I, I, I want to see the, the system. So um, she agreed and she opened up the system on her computer and looked at them. And there are about seven or eight fully coarse-grained indicators um, were used for this prediction model. And this model is supervised by very highly biased data. Basically, they collect mammogram data for all the women from developed countries. So because of my AI knowledge, I immediately found many problems on these indicators. They are very coarse-grained. For example, um, some of them about the patient profile, your age, race, and gender, and so on. And uh, many of them are about unknown categories for many of us. For example, there's a question, are there any other women family members who also have abnormal mammogram results? So for a patient like myself, my grandma passed away about 10 years ago. She did not have access to mammogram. She did not probably ever do mammogram. So uh, for this kind of category, I have to put a blank answer or just guess yes, no. And uh, the other problem is a lot of the indicator results are not robust. Basically, uh, if they change the number, for example, from uh, number of biopsies from one to two, in my case, my risk level went up from 17% to 37%, even though all of my biopsy results were always negative. 
Since then, I have decided to devote my research to help healthcare and medicine using my AI knowledge because I want to know what's wrong with my body, how to treat myself, and everyone else who is in the similar situation. I am very nervous and scared to enter this new field that I know nothing about. I know nothing about chemistry, medicine, or biomedical domain. Just like when I came to the country, when I did not have any friends or family. But I'm so excited to have this great opportunity to learn new knowledge and also potentially change the world. I have just started this new direction, and I cannot wait to see what happens next. Thank you. That was Hangji. Hangji is a computer science professor at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and an Amazon scholar. Her research interests focus on natural language processing. She has received multiple awards for her work, including World Economic Forum Young Scientist, AI's Tend to Watch Award, NSF Career Award, Google Research Award, IBM Watson Faculty Award, and more. Okay. Before we continue, I just want to remind you that on December 6th, we have a one-of-a-kind online show coming up that you don't want to miss. Nine of the amazing storytellers from our board of directors will be competing in Story Collider's All-Star Slam, including Steve Zimmer, a 40-time Moss Slam champion, John Rennie, the former editor-in-chief of Scientific American, Natalia Reagan, who you might recognize from Star Talk and Nat Geo, Comedy Central comedian Gastor Almonte, as well as other storytellers you've heard and loved on this podcast before, like Latasha Wright, Eric Jankowski, Andrea Jones-Roy, Ken Holler, and Brandon Ugbunu, who always bring the house down. This is going to be one hell of a show, and these champion storytellers will all be competing for your votes so that they can win the ultimate prize of being named the greatest science storyteller. All you need to do to vote for your favorite storytellers is make a donation in whatever amount you're comfortable with to the Story Collider. But the show is free to attend for everyone, and the proceeds from the show will go to support the creation of this podcast that you're listening to right now. Find out more at storycollider.org, and we hope to see you there. Also, we have just a few last in-person shows coming up in 2022, including one in New York and Dallas. Find out more at storycollider.org shows. And if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. Also, if you're tired of listening to ads on the podcast, you can also sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story is from Brendan Harley. It was recorded in his home in the fall this year. I grew up in a leafy suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, the oldest of three boys. My dad was a civil engineer who built water systems, and my mom was an occupational therapist. I built a lot of Legos and remember visiting my dad's office on school breaks. I was excited about the idea of doing something useful 
for society. And to me, that looked like engineering. There was no existential threat. One of my first jobs was at a farming cooperative in my town, growing vegetables in the summer and tapping trees and making maple syrup in the winter. Worries were things like me not getting into my top choice college. It was all there, laid out in front of me. But in life, sometimes there are crises. For me, that came in 11th grade. That spring was a whirlwind. Spring track season, college visits, junior prom. But I was just tired. I had been feeling increasingly tired for a couple of weeks. Spots appeared in my vision. My times in track were getting slower. And all I wanted to do after dinner each night was to fall asleep. I put it off as junior year and didn't tell anyone. Then I woke up the morning of May 5th, 1995, a Friday. Petechiae had appeared on my hands. I scrubbed them off before coming down to breakfast, but my mom could tell something was off. She took me out of school and dragged me to a doctor's appointment that morning. She was convinced I was just not me. But I was too busy to admit to anyone just how tired I felt. I had a multi-year run of not missing any days of school, so after a quick test for mono, I went back to class. I had college entrance exam Saturday morning, so after track practice, I went home wanting nothing more than to go to sleep, to feel better in the morning. I had the flu a few months before. I slept that off, ran the hurdles in the state sectional meet the next morning, and got a Big Mac with my dad. So I was lying down in my dad's office, crunched into a too short blue leather sofa with my legs hanging over the end. I was uncomfortable and trying to get away from the noise of dinner. The phone rang. I could hear the stress in my mom's voice. Then the house exploded with energy. Leukemia. This was pre-Google. No information. Just a voice telling my mom to get me to the hospital. Any hospital. I was 17 and ignored just how sick I'd become. My blood counts were bad. Like, historically bad. Like if I had gone to sleep that night, I probably wouldn't have woken up in the morning. So my mom scrambled to find a family friend who could watch my younger brothers, who were just 10 and 14, and figure out a way into the hospital. My dad was still at his office in Boston, so enter Larry, our neighbor. I'm still not sure why my mom didn't just drive us the 30 minutes to Brigham Women's Hospital. But my mom had told the voice on the phone we were going to the Brigham, not Children's because she was worried that my six-foot-four frame might not fit in their beds. I was about to be a very sick kid, surrounded by very sick adults, 20, 30, and 40 years my senior. But what I remember most is sitting on the stone wall at the bottom of my driveway that evening, experiencing dusk, blossoming trees, the smell of spring arriving, and terrified for probably the first time in my life. I was faced with a situation that probably likely even, wouldn't work out. My mind raced as I sat on that wall. It was only a couple of minutes I sat there waiting as my mom got my brothers ready for another neighbor, but I was alone, and it was quiet. And then I got into Larry's Volvo with a sinking feeling I maybe, probably, wouldn't ever get back home. We arrived at the hospital to a busy ER Friday night. Reception gave me a mask and latex gloves, then quickly found a private room. Doctors streamed in and out, my dad got there, and that one word on the phone, leukemia, got filled out in detail. Philadelphia chromosome positive acute myelogenous leukemia, with a touch of acute lymphoblastic leukemia and chronic myelogenous leukemia thrown in just for good measure. Very poor survival rates. 
I was numb and terrified, but so tired I, I couldn't really process it. Something called a bone marrow transplant was the only treatment, but it took time and luck to even make it to the transplant floor. I had to get through induction chemotherapy, potentially multiple rounds of maintenance chemo, not get sicker. We had to find a donor. My brothers? My mom was a twin, so maybe my cousin? My parents? They all needed to get tested. But first, I had to make it to Saturday. The doctors ran a leukapheresis machine in reverse all night just to pull immature blood cells out of me as fast as they could to keep me alive. Machines beeping all night, uncomfortable, and alone. By 7 a.m. Saturday morning, I was in surgery getting a Hickman catheter put in. By lunch, I was starting chemo. I was lucky to be living near one of the best teaching hospitals in the country. But that also meant many days I had flocks of interns and new residents coming through my room, working on their bedside manner, trying to decipher my initial symptoms to figure out what I had, or just checking my vitals one after another. I got to talk to them. I wasn't going anywhere, and they were almost my age. Some had engineering degrees, some were physician scientists who did research, and all were excited to be taking care of people. They talked about their college experiences and tried to take my mind off of the day-to-day. One even spent weeks trying to convince me to apply to Harvard. Time went fast, yet slow, and I learned to listen, pay attention, and be grateful for each new morning. I played Scrabble with my grandmother a lot. I watched Faulty Towers with my dad almost every night, ate all the junk food I could, yet still lost 20 pounds. The night of my prom, I ate a Whopper from the food court alone in my hospital room and I watched the triple-decker across the street burn down. I lost all my hair, including eyelashes. I studied from my final exam through chemo and couldn't remember anything I had studied. I walked endless loops around the floor. Then I went home from that concrete cityscape after induction chemo in June and remember being in awe of the trees. The trees that were just starting to come to life in the spring when I left were green and lush. One of those first days back, I also learned my middle brother was a perfect marrow match. I now just had to make it to August for the transplant. Stepping onto the transplant floor, I met Michelle, my charge nurse. She was pregnant with her first kid and tasked with taking care of me. She was my one constant. She was about five feet tall. She felt like she was barely older than me and greeted me with a smile every morning. Transplant was hard. The total body irradiation and chemo I needed to get ready for the transplant was intense. I remember being bundled from my isolation room across the hospital to the radiation chamber twice a day. There was a colorful five-foot-tall parrot painted on the wall of that lead-lined concrete walls. For the kids. But all I could think about was how that parrot should have been dead a thousand times over from all the radiation it saw. Lying alone in the silent chamber on a simple cot, I would hear a low whir, then feel every part of me getting cooked. After a week, I was on hardcore pain meds and just a shell. I sat in silence and watched a bag of my brother's bone marrow dripped into my catheter. Then five weeks of hanging by a thread. The bad nights are still burned into my memory. Temperature spiking, numbers crashing, everyone on edge. And me, just so, so tired. I made it through those days with Michelle. 
but I couldn't help but notice rooms around me on the transplant floor where I saw that same burst of energy then heard a code and witnessed silence and loss. Getting off the bone marrow floor was a privilege few who stepped on got back then. There's a point in the middle where I started thinking about my future. I just decided that either I was going to make it through, in which case I should have a plan, or I wouldn't. But really it was my community, nurses, doctors, my family, and Michelle. They saw me, heard me, and showed me compassion, and that was empowering. It was the support I needed to dream about what was next. Somewhere buried in all those interactions with doctors and nurses, I heard about the idea of tissue engineering. The ear mouse, actually. A group of engineers and doctors who grew human cartilage cells in a polymer structure on the back of the mouse in the shape of a human ear. I saw a way of blending engineering with taking care of people. A future. Michelle and I made it out together. The morning I was discharged from the marrow floor, Michelle got me ready. I was heading home with no immune system, about to spend a year in isolation hoping to heal. I didn't want to go home. How could I be safe? We took a picture sitting on my hospital bed, and then she bundled me off. Michelle went home that day, too, and had her baby that night. She somehow willed herself to hold on so she could get me home. Making it to 100 days post-transplant was my goal, so I counted. One becomes 10, 10 became 100, 100 became a 1,000, and I'm still counting. Later this year, 1,000 becomes 10,000 days. 27 years. Can you imagine? I'm now a professor of chemical engineering at a Midwest public research university. I teach and I run a tissue engineering research lab. My students do exceptionally cool things, like straight out of Star Trek cool. I also carry a weight with me. I feel it's my responsibility to make a difference in this world, and for me, that includes making science bigger, more inclusive, and more equitable. I want people to experience the joy of solving problems and having impact. And I believe solutions to a lot of our problems come from communities that care for one another to make an exceptional future possible. And I know that starts with compassion. That was Brendan Harley. Brendan is a professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. His research group develops biomaterial that can be implanted in the body to regenerate musculoskeletal tissues or that can be used outside the body as tissue models to study biological events linked to endometrium, brain cancer, and stem cell behavior. The Story Collider is so grateful to Hung and Brendan for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of IGB and Science Sandbox a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, education director Lily B., and our operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Emma Young and me, Misha Gajewski, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and a huge thanks again to IGB for supporting this episode. 
Next week, we'll be back with more true personal stories about science from our stages. Until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.